Hey folks, welcome to The 180 with Eric Lockley. I'm your host, Eric Lockley. There are moments in life that define us, that set us on one path or plunge us down a completely different one. Join me as we dive into our guests' turning points. Let's laugh, heal, and be inspired together as we pull back the curtain on how our guest made The 180. Sometimes life gets hard when you're on your journey. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life will be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes I to your you beautiful future. The 180, yeah. yeah. 90s R&B is my favorite genre of music, so, you know, got to do it up, got to do it up. Today, I am so thrilled to have April Rain in the house. April is an activist and speaker about diversity, inclusion, and representation. She created the hashtag OscarsSoWhite following her disappointment in the lack of diversity at the 2015 Academy Awards. She's also the co-founder of She Will Rise, an initiative working to ensure equality in the United States by getting the first black woman on the United States Supreme Court. Recently, she partnered with Overture Global to increase the opportunities for people of color working in creative fields. They launched Ensemble, a content studio aimed at providing support to people of color in areas such as development, production, promotion, and distribution. April's work focuses on increasing diversity in not just Hollywood, but also among other creative industries and within the country itself. Thank you, thank you, thank you, April, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. I'm excited for the conversation. And we have some friends and things in common, which I didn't realize until I did a little research, a little deep dive. Jewel Z is a part of She Will Rise. We used to work at the Apple Store together years ago. Wow. And you worked at Fracture Atlas for some time, right? I did, that's right, a couple of years ago. My organization, the Movement Theater Company, and uh, another organization I work with, Harlem Nine, we were members of Fractured Atlas. Awesome. It's like six degrees of separation. Exactly. So we're going to play a fun little game to get us started. I always love having fun and being silly with some games. It's game time on the 180. The name of the game is The Truth About Oscars. I'm going to make some statements and you will let me know if they are true or false. And these are statements about famous Oscars. Number one, the Academy Award received the nickname Oscar based on the very first person to ever receive an Academy Award. Is this true or false? False. Correct. It is false. Margaret Herrick, who was the Academy librarian at that time, upon seeing the trophy for the first time, she remarked that it resembled her uncle Oscar. She just was like, that looked like my uncle. And they were like, okay, Oscar, okay. See, white women just inserting themselves where they weren't necessarily requested. But, you know, here we are. And 90 years later. 90 years later. <laughs> Number two. Oscar the Grouch was inspired by a nasty waiter from a restaurant called Oscar's Tavern in Manhattan that Jim Henson would frequent. True or false? Ooh, I'm going to go true. And if I'm wrong, I want to give myself a caveat and say that Ooh. the original Oscar was not green, but orange. <laughs> so although I may have gotten this wrong, <laughs> I should get half credit. <laughs> well, you are correct. Oh, even better. Jim Henson would go to Oscar's Tavern and there was this really mean ass waiter. They found it to be funny, but just, but also sad. So they created Oscar the Grouch. There you go. 
Next up, Oscar Wilde, poet, novelist, and playwright, who actually, he wrote one of my favorite books, The Picture of Dorian Gray. I love that book. A little weird and creepy, but I love it, The Picture of Dorian Gray. But anyway, Oscar Wilde, his last words were reportedly, this wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. Either it goes or I do. That was my dramatic interpretation. No, no, I appreciate it. It was a little Shakespearean or something in there with, with the little hood. No, I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it. Yeah, true or false? Yeah, he was he was a little weird. I'm going to go true. I, I'm not sure, but I'm going to go true. Correct. No, that was right. That was right. That was right. That that was a good thing. Oh, that, that was, was a good. good. Okay, yeah, so yeah, you yeah. started with the bell and then I right. got the foghorn. Okay, okay. Yeah, you're three so for I'm three, three for three. Next up, former professional boxer... Oscar De La Hoya was the highest paid athlete in boxing when he hung up his gloves in 2004. I think that's right. Yeah, I, I, was, a, I was a De La Hoya fan, so true. Yes, you are killing it, April. <laughs> yes, you know, you know your Oscars, which, Who you know. Knew? I, was, I wasn't expecting this. So this is fun and also a little anxiety ridden because I'm very competitive even with myself. But let's keep going. You are... Four for four. How many, wait, how many questions are there? There are five. So, you know, one more. Oh, okay, okay. I'm ready, I'm ready. I watched a lot of Mortal Kombat, so you're about to get a flawless victory. Oh, I love it. Okay. Oscar Mayer's Wienermobile, first created in 1936, has toured the United States for over 70 years, and their drivers, called hot doggers, often hand out toy whistles called wiener whistles, which are shaped like a Wienermobile. Yeah, that's absolutely true. No, that's absolutely true. No question. You know your Oscars, for sure, April. Interesting. You did a sweep. You win all the awards. Uh, We can get you an Oscar and call it uh, Omar. I like that. Yes, absolutely. We're going to give you your Omar. And just like the real Oscars or the Academy Awards, since I'm a Black woman, it's really not going to make any bit of difference with respect to me getting future work. Hello, Holly Berry, Octavia Spencer, Viola Davis. Oh, I love your truth telling. <laughs> I actually like the idea of like let's remix it. Let's let's create the Omars. You know what I mean? Why not? Well, I mean, let's be careful. We do have the NAACP Image Awards, yes, we so do. you know we don't need to necessarily recreate the wheel. But I but I hear you. But we could start calling. I don't think that award has a name. Right? Exactly. We should call them the Omars after like Mr. Epps. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> after Mr. Epps, you know, an underappreciated, undervalued black actor. Why not? We could start this. April. And then you know what? Omari Hardwick is going to get in there and be like, why couldn't it be an Omari? Omari? You're right. We'll figure it out. Between you and I, we got the social media clout. (laughs) There it is. There it is. We could do this. We could. Come on. Let me call up Derek Johnson real quick. Hallelujah! (laughs) Yes, call call him up. Call him up! (laughs) So now I want to just ask you some questions. Who's a celebrity that you would be beside yourself if you saw, if you got to meet. Okay, so I'm going to recognize my privilege here and say that, you know, since I created Oscar So White, I have had the amazing fortune to be in the room with many celebrities. Mm -hmm. It's always a treat and a pleasure. And every now and again, I fangirl. I'm trying to think of somebody that I haven't met that I would really like to. Or if there's somebody that you met that surprised you and you were like, oh, 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 oh." okay, this this is going to be really silly. Uh Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. And this is why I'm having trouble. I have met Viola Davis, you know, who is like the creme de la creme all over the place. Mm. Um, you know, I have met Michael B. Jordan, who's just incredibly handsome and, you know, a great person. Mm. I have met Barry Jenkins, who is one of the most prolific filmmakers, right? Yes. And so typically I can be cool about it. I, I Let me change the question a little bit. The person that I met mm-hmm. that really made me lose my sing, lose my ish, uh-huh. was Gordon from Sesame Street. Oh, this is a very silly story. I think I've met him in life too. See? And it was, I want to say it was 2009. And I know that because it was the first Easter egg hunt of the Obama presidency. Uh-huh. And I was a volunteer at the White House, you know, showing people where to go or what have you. This is obviously way before Oscar's so white or whatever. And so I took the day off and just got to roam the South Lawn grounds. And, you know, they have events all day long with the kids. Uh-huh. And he was going to read, um, I think the book is called The Monster at the End of This Book. It's a book by Grover the Muppet on Sesame Street. Oh, yes. I love Grover. You know, listen, I am 50 years old. Uh-huh. And so I was born in 1970. Sesame Street started in 1969. So I literally grew up grew with up. Sesame Street. Oh. And Gordon was way up there. And plus he has the bald head and the salt and pepper beard, just like my dad. Oh, You know, he was doing his thing and he was about to sit down and read the book to the kids. And I was able to call him over just for a second, even though we weren't supposed to talk to talent, but I was going to shoot my shot. Uh-huh. Shoot your shot. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, how often do you have the opportunity? You know, I I just had, you know, just a couple of minutes just to thank him for everything that he'd done because, you know, obviously he had been on the show for decades. And I was nearly in tears just because it was so amazing to meet him. And so even though that was before Oscar Suwai and before I had met a whole bunch of famous people, that's the one that sticks out to me uh, now, what, 10, 15 years later. I love that. Roscoe Orman is his name. Yes, thank you. Brother Roscoe, yes. And I've met him just, I think, in the Black theater community. I've seen him. He's attended different things. But yeah, he's a a really wonderful human being and and just as endearing as as he is as Gordon on Sesame Street. So I'm going to talk to you more about representation. Growing up, what representation did you see in mass media versus what you experienced in life? Yeah, very, very little. You know, again, I, you know, I'm 50 years old. So, you know, TV for me is... Which I can't set. believe. I just got to <laughs> I, I say, I got to say, you look good. We, I, I appreciate mean, black, you. Don't crack truly. Yes. I you appreciate hydrate, you. I drink a clearly. lot of water. <laughs> that's hey, what it is. I know, see? That's what, that's it, what is. it is. So, you know, so I grew up, you know, in the 70s and the 80s. And so we're talking about Sanford and Son and, mm. and good times. And so the first character that I can remember really resonating with was Kim Field's Tootie mm. on Facts of Life. Yeah. And, you know, this was, I guess, the early 80s. You know, it was the only... And I went to predominantly white schools just throughout my entire life. And so that was pretty much the only... This was obviously before the Cosby Show. So this was kind of like the only young Black girl mm-hmm. um, that any white folks knew either. And so my nickname became Tootie because they're like, oh, oh you're Black, right. so clearly. <laughs> <laughs> you're the one frame of reference that we have. So that's what we're going to go with. Oh, gosh. Fortunately, you know, she was a great character, you know, and 
Kim Fields is a, is a great actress, and we saw her later on Living Single. But there were a couple of touch points. You know, the first time that Lando Calrissian came on screen in The Empire Strikes Ooh. Back, you know, with that flowing cape and, you know, and that yes. wavy hair. And, you know, yes. and he was a badass, you know, and he was sort of a villain, but he was so, still cool. And, you know, uh-huh. and even, you know, Carrie Fisher, Princess Leia got the vapors, you know. So, uh-huh. so that, that was an important <laughs> moment. The fact that I can name them so easily means that there clearly weren't enough. And so I'm very thankful that here we are, you know, 40, 50 years later, and there are a lot more opportunities for folks, but still not enough. Yeah, totally. And and just to add on to what you're talking about, for me personally, like I remember growing up in the in the 90s, even I remember New York undercover <laughs> and like there being these little like grimy, hard shows. And meanwhile, especially as a kid, I was grateful for Steve Urkel. As I wear my plaid shirt today. I was going to say, you're giving a little Steve tease right now. <laughs> Absolutely. I can see that, you know. And my, my son oh. actually was uh, was Steve Urkel one year for, for Halloween. So he had the broken glasses and the yes. suspenders and the high water pants and, and the saddle shoes. And it, it was kind of cute. I mean, you know, he, there, I think there are touch points for everybody. And, and Steve was yeah. a good guy, a little nerdy. But I'm sure mm-hmm. there are a lot of folks who could relate. And Jaleel White, I'm telling if I could give him an Omar myself... I would give him all the awards because when I look back and I'm like, the different characters he played. The, the, you know, anyway, so shout out to Jaleel White. I love that, yeah, you, I, I that there's a through line of the Omars. I love that you are being consistent with this. <laughs> when this airs, I want somebody to be like, let's make the Omars a thing. I'm here for it. <laughs> Why not? What's your relationship to social media? Obviously, you know, you, you started the hashtag Oscars So White. And I think more recently, especially with everything that's going on with the pandemic, we've been really, I think people as a community, we've been really intentional about discussing social media and the use of social media. So do you feel like you're able to find a good balance of using it as a tool and also separating yourself from it? Or are you still looking for that balance or seeking that balance? Oh, there is no balance for me. I, uh, hello, my <laughs> name is April. I'm addicted to Twitter. You know, and I need the background to say, hi, April. Yeah. So let me tell you my story. Right? And I acknowledge that. I, you know, I I know that I am literally addicted. Like I'm the one that says, OK, I really got to get some work done. Let me close my laptop. And then I pick up my phone. Like, you know, it, and it happens uh-huh, uh-huh. like almost simultaneously. I joined Twitter in 2010. So it's been 10 years. I know that I have over 500,000 tweets. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. You know, we used to have like Twitter after dark. We used to have, you know, it used to be a lot Uh simpler 10 10 years ago. Now it's changed. And and obviously there are other apps. Twitter is where I am all the time, but there's a new audio only app that's in beta called Clubhouse. And so I'm on that. Yeah. And so it's like you can literally have conversations because you can hear people's voices. And so there's a lot of arguing or discussing or whatever. You know, you just have an avatar, but, you know, so you're not typing anything. You're actually, you know, with your voice having conversations. And so that's been interesting. I use Instagram less so, you know, I have an account for visual stuff and that's where you can probably see, you know, pictures of me with famous people. (laughs) I think I'm too old for TikTok, to be honest with you. I'm just not that demographic, you know, but I love when the TikToks come over to Twitter (laughs) because it's like, okay, now I can watch it. Uh (laughs) 
I'm on it all the time. I feel like now with the platform that I have with an obscene number of followers, I have a responsibility mm-hmm. to educate and inform folks. Right now, obviously, you know, we're right before the election. So we're having these conversations about digital voter suppression. Ooh. You know, Diddy has decided two weeks before the election that he's going no. to create an entirely new political party. Come on, Diddy. Could you not release what? that November 4th? Yes. Yes. I did not know that. Yes. There's clearly a conspiracy. We could go on for days because whatever is happening with these black rappers right now, this this is not by chance. Yeah. Diddy, Kanye, 50 Cent, Ice Cube, they all drinking the Kool-Aid, the secret sauce, something. It, and it's concerning right. because they obviously also have huge platforms and are revered, some of them, in the black community, especially amongst black men. Right. And it's black men specifically that Trump is trying to siphon off. So when you have, you know, Ice Cube saying, you know, you got to work for my vote, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, and maybe we just need to, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and then he's having conversations with Trump or Diddy's like, oh, no, come to party number three, not the Democrats, not the Republicans, but this thing that I'm creating from whole claw. You know, it's a problem because I don't believe that there are any undecided voters. I think there are people trying to decide whether they're going to vote at all. Right. Right. But I think that everybody who has decided that they are going to vote, they know who they're voting for, right? That's not Mm -hmm. a question. There are just way too many stark contrasts between what we have, you know, even though they're both white men. Oh, oh, yeah, we could, like you said, we could have a whole nother conversation (laughs) about this because it's crazy. I want to talk about Black Twitter moments. (laughs) Do you have any favorite Black Twitter moments? And I love, I mean, Black Twitter is like so specific and brings me and so many people so much joy. But do you have any moments that are like... This was the moment when it just felt like we were home. This was the cookout. This was the family reunion. Yes. And there, there are so many of those. And thank God for Black Twitter and the community that we have created. I mean, I don't know if you remember, has Justine landed yet? About the white woman who tweeted, on my way to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. <laughs> and then jumped on like a 16-hour flight. And when she turned her phone on again on the continent, she realized she had oh, no job <laughs> because we right. and I guess the Black Twitter detectives went to work. And so we stayed up. You know, it's a 16-hour flight from wherever she was going to the right. continent. <laughs> and so we it. stayed up all night using the hashtag has Justine landed yet to ensure that cis girl got her um, due. Oh, my God. <laughs> received her consequences for being racist on the app. I hear the claps in that. Has Justine landed yet? Like, right. I hear it. Right. You know, it's, like, I was just looking so around serious. the corner. Has Justine landed yet? Is she here? <laughs> has she gone through customs? <laughs> like, like, has she turned her phone on? Like, you know, how many text messages and phone calls has she gotten while, she, you know, or she's been in airplane mode? Wow. That was a real one. That was a lot of fun. Wow. There's Mo Jizzle and Father's Day. I don't know how how long you've been on Twitter, but there there's this dude who apparently had not been taking care of his child. Oh. And so Twitter called him out. And so like every Father's Day for several years, we would talk about Mo Jizzle. That was his name, like M-O-J-I-Z-E-L or something like that. And we would roast him every year on Father's Day <laughs> to, to talk about, you know, oh, well, you haven't, you know, yeah, you see in the app, but, you know, you haven't seen your child. So, you know, yes. Oh, my God. Um, and, and, there, and there are others. You know, I, I, I want to plug myself for a minute. We started the No Confederate hashtag. Mm. When the showrunners and creators of Game of Thrones, Benioff and Weiss, decided 
that they were going to create an entirely new program after Game of Thrones that was called Confederate. Oh, yes. Yeah, and would focus on what would it be like if three states in the current United States had re-enslaved their Black citizens. Mm. Now, and this was around the time of um, Charlottesville and Heather Heyer. And so we were like, how is this alternate reality when we're living through, you know, parts of the Confederacy Mm -hmm. rearing its ugly head? So me and four other Black women assembled like Voltron (laughs) and created the no Confederate hashtag and long story short, HBO shelved the project. Wow. Yeah, we said... We're not having it. <laughs> We're not having it. Exactly. Oh, I love the Price is Right trombones. Okay. I was excited to use it. I appreciate it. So you've had a career that seems to be consistent in terms of really caring about the visibility and representation of, of Black folks. What has the journey been like? And what are some moments that have felt really impactful or a moment of transition for you within this journey? Just to give folks a little bit of background, I wasn't always whatever it is you want to call me now. I don't call myself an activist. I call myself an advocate for representation in the entertainment industry. Mm. To me, activists are the people who are on the ground making change, you know, out there in the streets talking about policy and liberation for Black folks, right? That, that's mm-hmm. just my personal definition. So I definitely don't put myself in the category with those heroes and sheroes. Mm. I was a practicing attorney for about 15, 16, 17 years, and I was practicing campaign finance law. Wow. So I had no nexus to the entertainment industry at all. And then Oscar So White happened and, and this is my 180 moment. And so everything changed. You know, and, and so I had to learn everything, you know, because all I all I was was an avid moviegoer, you know, a, and a massive consumer of entertainment. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have any network. I didn't have any connections. I had to figure out how white the Oscars were after I created that hashtag. <laughs> you know, turns out Snow White, like, you know, liquid paper white, copy paper white, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Yeti in an avalanche white, that, that kind of, it was white. You know, Birkenstocks in the wintertime, white. Yes, I don't wash my legs in the shower, white. White. You understand? You understand? I was having the poor... This description of white... Oh my gosh. I wish I had a sound that could be a Becky or something. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. I need to speak to your manager. I love that. I, I think that's perfect. That's a Becky. That's a Karen. That's a, you know, whatever. Since Oscar So White, so since 2015, my life has completely changed. And I'm happy to get into this more with you, um, you know, if you want mm-hmm. to in a bit. Um, but just to yeah. answer your question, you know, since then, you know, we've seen some incremental change. Mm-hmm. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, the folks who run the Oscars said, okay, well, we're going to double the number of people people of color and double the number of women within our membership ranks by this year, by 2020. And they did that. Right. But the numbers overall, because the Oscars were so overwhelmingly white and male, older white and male, like the average Oscar member is like a 60 year old white man. Mm. So even after they doubled the number of people of color, they doubled the number of women. It was still like 89 percent white, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and, and so it, it wasn't really a change like they, you know, they like to splash it around and say, oh, look what we did. And then even this year, the Academy said that they were going to change the parameters for the best 
picture category. Right. So that you would have to be more thoughtful about diversity and inclusion if you wanted to be up for that award. Now, you can drive a Mack truck through the loopholes of that particular initiative. Oh, wow. You know, I wrote a piece for The Hollywood Reporter about that particular initiative. And I said, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like window dressing on a condemned house, you know, so it looks good. Yes. But it's actually Mm -hmm. not making any change for the folks who should get changed. So anyway, back to the question about, you know, milestones, I guess. Those things, I guess we can call milestones because it's the first time that the Academy has actually made any significant change in its 92-year history, but it's clearly not enough. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I had met Barry Jenkins, you know, the director Mm -hmm. of Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk and Underground, which is coming soon. Yes, I'm excited. And so I saw him and I waved to him and he waved me over and he introduced me to his paramour. You know, he said, this woman changed my life. Mm. Now, that's kind of deep, you know, and I had to sit there. I'm like, the Barry Jenkins said something like that. You know, the, so, wow. the, so that, yeah. you know, so that was a moment for me. And he said it to who? Who was who was it that he said? He said it to his partner. OK, OK. You know, and so he's introduced me to his love wow. as someone who has impacted him. When I met Julie Dash, you know, of Daughters of the Dust fame, mm-hmm. you know, she was not in there, there's a long story behind it, but. There, for many reasons, Black folks have not become Academy members because of the rules of how you get in. Hmm. Part of it is either you have to be nominated for an Oscar or win an Oscar, or you have to be you, you have to be sponsored. Like you have to have two people or three people within the Academy say, yes, they should be a member. Well, if it's nothing but old yeah. white men, <laughs> you know who right, they're going to yeah. sponsor and who they're not going to sponsor. So although Julie Dash did the seminal work of Daughters in the Dust, she was not an Academy member. Hmm. Once the Academy said we're going to bring in more people of color and more women, they rightfully and much overdue recognized her and she became a member of the Academy. Yes. After that happened, I met her at Sundance and she said, oh, so you're the woman who is responsible for me being an Academy member. And so it's little things like that. Yeah. It's 30 seconds throughout the course of an entire year. But those are the things that stay with me that let me know that, you know, I'm doing the right thing. I just need to keep going and I need to do more. Mm. Message. <laughs> Keep going. And do more. And do more. You talked about making way for others, which, you know, for you, you were being yourself. You were, you were absolutely leaning into what you believed. Who are people that have made room for you in your life that you feel like have really made that space for you to be your bold self? Oh, man, so many people who who have just, you know, welcomed in this middle-aged woman who had no background in, you know, in the same industry that they've been toiling away at for decades, you know, have just welcomed me with open arms. You know, Tamron Hall, the first time I met her, you know, she just came up and gave me a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. And, you know, we've gone out to lunch and, you know, every now and again, she'll text me a picture of Moses, her son. And, you know, it's like, that's Tamron Hall, you know? Oh my God, yeah. how am I, you know? And so, yeah, I, I can fangirl out, the, you know, in, in that way. Um, you know, the fact that Ava DuVernay recognizes me by face, you know, and, and I'm mm. not, I don't live in LA. I'm not in Hollywood, you know, I, I that's not me. And yet, you know, when she sees me, when we're in an, at an event together or something, you know, she'll wave, hey sis, how you doing, whatever, and we'll hug and, you know, and, and she's just lovely. Of course, the first two people that I mentioned are Black women because that's how we do. Mm-hmm. You know, we welcome each other into the fold and, and we lift as we climb. 
Daytavio Samuels from now Revolt TV, you know, formerly Interactive One. Mm -hmm. There have been so many people who have seen something in me before I saw it in myself. Mm. And this goes back to the 180. But, you know, here I am at that time when I created Oscar So White, I was a 44 year old woman with two kids at home um, and a practicing attorney. Mm. Right. None of that says entertainment advocate who travels around the world and you may just see her in Cannes in France, you know, or you may just see her in Toronto at the film festival. None of that says that. Oh, right. Right. And so <laughs> having folks just be open and lifting as they climb and being thoughtful. You know, I went to the Oscars one time, that was 2019, and the sisters that reached out to me and were like, hey, make sure you got some granola bars, right? <laughs> and and, and a, take a, prepared. you know, and take a, take a comfy pair of shoes to change into because those five-inch uh -huh. stilettos you walk in the carpet with will not last, you know, were fantastic, <laughs> you know, and that was Gabrielle Union and that was Tarana yeah. Burke and, you know, all yeah. these amazing people. It's been amazing to me how much I've been welcomed into the outer circle. I'm definitely not, not in anybody's inner circle, but I am very happy <laughs> where I am on the outer, outer circle, right? you know, yeah. but having the opportunity to, you know, sometimes say, oh, okay, you know, I'm working on this project, you know, like the She Will Rise campaign. Mm -hmm. We would love to get some fa actual famous people and celebrities to help us, you know, have this conversation about the first black woman Supreme Court justice. Who do I know? And then I go through mm -hmm. my Rolodex, you know, my phone, Rolodex, that shows how old I am, you know, but I go through my phone <laughs> and it's like, oh, well, hell, you know, I actually have so-and-so's home number, you know, and, and, right, and, and yeah. it always, it's surprising to me too, you know, and, and I never, ever, ever take that for granted. I'm just very thankful for the openness that people have shown through the years. With that in mind, I'm curious because you said, you know, I have this person's number on my phone. Do you find that you have to muster up the courage to approach people at this point? You know what I mean? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And and especially for me, you know, I still suffer from imposter syndrome. You know, like, mm -hmm. what are you doing here? You, you, this isn't you. <laughs> you know, you're not an actor. <laughs> you're not a producer. That You know, that's not who you are. You're just a woman with a hashtag. Like, what is going on right now? <laughs> so it depends on what it is. You know, I, the, there are times when I'm like, okay, Okay, let's really decide, you know, this may be your one, you know, your one favor mm -hmm. or your one ask or whatever. Let's really decide if this is worth it and if you need to reach out personally or if you need to go through official channels right. so that it doesn't count as your personal favor. You know what I mean? And so there's right. there's always that calculus going on as well. Or, you know, I'll reach out and say, hey, we're doing this thing. If you're interested, would love to contact you formally. So at least that way, mm -hmm. you know, because some of these folks have managers and agents and publicists. And so just to get right. to them, you know, you've got to go through 47 different layers. And so if I can just tee it up and say, hey, something is coming, could you ask your people to look out for it? Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's enough to get us in the door so that we at least can move through those layers quickly. But yeah, sometimes it, it is hard. I remember this was several years ago now. I was helping the Capital City Black Film Festival in Austin, Texas. Uh, and I was their mm -hmm. ambassador or some like title that didn't really mean anything. <laughs> you know, and they were looking for like a big film to showcase. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to Jesse Williams via DM on Twitter. And I don't even think that we had actually met at that point. Maybe we had once. Uh -huh. You know, and I just said, hey. 
would love to get, you know, and I can't remember what the film was. I think it was something that he had produced or maybe, you know, it was like documentary and he had worked on. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, we would love to showcase your film. Just let me know what hoops I need to jump through to get that to happen. And, you know, and it took like 10 days to hear back from him. And I was like, oh, okay, never mind, Uh you know. And but then he responded via DM and he's like, yeah, sure. You know, just talk to this person. Tell them I said it's okay, And we were able to show the film. Wow. I find, you know, in the limited interaction that I have that almost everybody is just down to earth. They remember the struggle, you know, if they're not already, you know, still in it, mm-hmm. you know, and they're happy to do something for someone else, you know, and are very giving and generous with their time or whatever. I think about, especially right now, um, you know, with all this going on with the summer of racial reckoning, as some folks are calling it, and and everything that's happening with respect to voting and getting people out, there are so many A-list celebrities and public figures who are donating their time You know, to do shows or, you know, IG lives or whatever the case may be, just because they understand that this is something important. Mm. I want to go back to the moment before you decided to do that hashtag Oscar So White. Like you said, you were 44 years old, a lawyer, two kids. What was your mindset before you created the hashtag, which turned into a movement? Where were you? And then what did you discover after you put it out there? Okay, so my 180 was not the hashtag itself. Okay, I would love to tell the really sexy story. You know, oh, I was sitting around the conference table with my people and we were ideating and strategizing and all those big fancy words that white folks use for think, <laughs> you know, about, you know, how we can impact the entertainment industry and using all my corporate speak. No, sir. What happened was... Uh-huh. January 2015, I was still a practicing lawyer, you know, and I was a huge Oscar fan. So I watched the nominations every year on, you know, one of the Mm. morning shows. Yeah. That particular year, January 2015, Chris Hemsworth, who plays Thor in the Avengers series, was one of the presenters. Mm -hmm. I said, Thor is going to be in a three-piece suit and I need him on the biggest TV in our house in HD. (laughs) So this is me putting on my skirt in the family room. (laughs) Getting ready for my lawyer job, watching Thor on our big screen TV, relatively big screen TV. As I was listening to the nominations, you know, category after category, best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actress, there were no people of color. Mm -hmm. So I picked up my phone, which is typically embedded in my forearm. (laughs) We talked about my addiction to Twitter. Uh I jumped on Twitter and I said, Oscar's so white, they asked to touch my hair. And that was it. (laughs) I was being snarky. I was being petty. Uh And then I was late from work. And so I went on to work. That was it. One tweet. That was it. And I checked in on Twitter around lunchtime. And based on that one tweet, the hashtag was trending around the world. And it was snarky, just as I was snarky. You know, Oscar So White, they have uh-huh. a perfect credit score. You know, Oscar uh-huh. So White, they wear Birkenstocks in the wintertime. You know, yes. um, this was before the non-leg washing thing. But, you know, Oscar So White, they love their tuna casserole. You understand. Uh-huh. They kiss their dogs in the mouth. Exactly. And this went on for a really long time. It wasn't until a couple of days later that the conversation switched into, well, how white are the Oscars? You know, is this an actual thing? Mm -hmm. So that came and sort of went. January 2016, the next year, it happened again. Mm. No people of color nominated for any of the acting categories. 
So that's when, a year later, when the media really picked up on it. Like, you know, maybe we need to figure out what this lady is talking about. Mm. Because one time is a fluke, two times is a pattern. And now we have two in a row, right? Yeah. And so it wasn't until a year later that Oscar So White really took off. And 2016, I think, was also the year that Jada Pinkett Smith was sort of up in arms because Will wasn't nominated for concussion what was that one called something it was seven but no i don't know no no it wasn't seven it was the other one then there must have been concussion something whatever you know which one i mean <laughs> right yes i do know and but then i was like okay so she was oh well maybe we need to boycott we need to make our own and and i and i have issues on that but we gonna move forward because this is not a red table <laughs> that i'm sitting at <laughs> Yep, I remember that moment. I do. Yeah, I was like, okay, sis, I hear you. Right. And yet you walked the Golden Globe carpet when he was nominated. So clearly this isn't an issue about representation. Right. This is an issue about that particular award show, which is cool, but let's call it what it is, right? Right. So anyway, so it was 2016 when it really took off in part because, you know, it got the bump from her. Mm-hmm. And there were actually some folks who thought that she had created the hashtag or whatever. So, you know, we need to clean that up a little bit as well. Mm-hmm. Some Somewhere in there, my 180 moment happens. Like, you know what? A year, you know, and I had created viral hashtags before, but this one felt like it had legs, like there was going to be some longevity. And so it was then, and here's where the 180 moment comes in, that I said, okay, I can't keep doing my day job, which I actually hated. Like, you know, it was financially stable and it wasn't very stressful and it was paying the mortgage every month, but it was sucking the life out of my soul. And so I think the universe realized that I needed something else. Yeah. And so I had been doing some things on the side, you know, just to speak to my creativity a little bit. But it was in 2016. And I was like, okay, I can't keep doing my day job and doing all of this stuff that I'm doing with respect to diversity and inclusion with the Oscars specifically. But it was also broadening to all of entertainment, because if you think the movies are bad, let's talk about theater, like Broadway shows. You know, right. we can also talk yes. about TV as well. Right. There are problems all across the board. And Oscar So White was not a binary black versus white thing. It was about all marginalized communities. So, you know, you think black folks got it bad. Let's talk about Latinx folks. Let's talk about disabled folks. Let's talk about the LGBT plus community, right? So all of those conversations were happening. And people were asking me to come speak and talk and, you know, and help them and, you know, work with their corporations to get more Black folks on the wall, as they say, from Sal's Pizza. <laughs> I just couldn't do both. And so I took a leap of faith and said, okay, I'm going to leave this really cushy job, you know, the six-figure job that's paying the bills with two kids at home, both of whom want to go to college, yeah. and do this thing, you know, which didn't really have a name, right? and strike out into this industry. Now at 45 years old with absolutely no experience and just figure out what this looks like. But I knew that it was bringing me joy mm. and it was filling me in a way that nothing professionally had ever done before. And so that's how I knew it was right. I'm very privileged to speak at colleges and universities all over the country. 
that's one of the things that I try to leave with students, like figure out what it is that you want to do now. Mm. Don't do like April did, <laughs> you know, wait until, <laughs> you know, you halfway through your life before you find that thing. Figure out what it is that you would do for free. Don't ever do it for free. Mm. But <laughs> that thing that, you know, that you don't mind being up until two in the morning or you don't mind working on weekends to do because you love it, because it fills you with passion, because it, it is your thing. It is not just your avocation, but it can be your vocation and go after that. Not the thing that your parents think you should do, mm-hmm. not the thing that society thinks you should do, but the thing that fills your soul because the money will come because you will work like hell to make it happen because it brings you joy. Message. <laughs> you said it. I mean, yes, absolutely. And I know one of my favorite quotes is follow your bliss because like you said, it brought you joy. It brought you fulfillment. Taking that leap of faith wasn't as scary, I assume, knowing that you had joy, you had fulfillment in doing it. So, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, and I also had a safety net, Mm. right? You know, I had a husband who had a stable job, you know, and so if I wasn't bringing in as much as I used to as a lawyer, we could sort of figure out how to balance it out, you know? So I had that support system and, and that's important too. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a marriage or a partner, but, you know, just some people who, when you're having those imposter syndrome moments, you know, when you're having those, what in the hell did I do? You know, who do you know that is hiring moments, you know, because we all go through those. I think that's helpful. It was helpful knowing that I could always go back and do the lawyer thing or something else if I needed to, because I had those skills. It's just not what I wanted to do. What would you like to see in the future? Well, the industry, but also the country, but also the world, because your initiatives are all more specific than only the industry. You know what I mean? It's a global initiatives around visibility and representation. We need to normalize inclusion. And both of those words are sort of overused, but... It shouldn't be that we have to have conversations about how do we make this better. It just should be already ingrained in people's thought processes. And so that's where we need to get. You know, if we're still talking about the first of anything in 2020, we're not doing it right. You know, and that's the first queer, whatever, the first disabled, whatever, the first black, the first Latinx, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, and we're still hitting up against those ceilings. You know, I mean, look at Kamala Harris. Yeah. You know, the first black woman, the first South Asian, the first woman to be where she is right now. We need to normalize inclusion. We need the gatekeepers, right? So people of color, people from traditionally underrepresented communities, we know what we need. So having those conversations is like preaching to the choir. You know, I'm going to tell Black people that we need more Black people. Yeah, and they all like, yeah, we know. You're, you know, got it. You know, this is a quick conversation. You don't need to stay, you know, and explain that. It's the gatekeepers. It's the people in charge. It's the CEOs. It's the C-suites who need to be more thoughtful, Uh and not just with respect to recruitment, but also retention, right? Yes. And so if you're bringing people in the room and having a seat at the table, it doesn't matter if you're only there to take notes. You should have agency. You should be on par Uh with everybody else in that room so that people know that your ideas, your suggestions are just as valid as anybody else. You know, and again, we talk about imposter syndrome, but anytime you get invited into a room, know that they wanted you there, Yes. Uh, you know, as opposed to anybody else, Uh right? They said, I want Eric in the room. And so you should walk in boldly with your full authentic self, because that's who they saw when they requested you specifically, right? Yes. 
Yes. And so, I mean, white folks are at the head of everything, you know, <laughs> especially in this country, but, you know, in most places around the world, other than the continent, thank God, mm-hmm. until they die off or have a moment of enlightenment. It's going to be really tough because you cannot have like middle managers say, oh, yeah, we, you know, we're all about diversity and inclusion around here. We're going to do this. Like you, you're not in charge of anything. Right. You know, you're not in charge of it. No, talk to me when the CEO, when the CFO, the one who actually has the money, mm-hmm. when the COO actually buy into this plan to normalize inclusion and be intentional about it, because that's when it trickles down to the entire organization. That's not just entertainment. That's tech. That's education. That's every single industry. Oh, this is so good. It's exciting to be able to have these conversations, but also to know that people are passionately ensuring that these conversations are happening at the levels of the gatekeepers and trying to make sure that we can get to the gatekeepers and have these conversations. And the fact that social media, Twitter, all of it is engaging dynamically with the challenge to really shift representation on screen and off screen and uh, globally. Social media is levels the playing field yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, you think about some of the amazing things that have happened because of social media. You know, somebody sees an amazing video of a couple of African kids, you know, making movies using, you know, torn bed sheets and, you know, whatever they can find in their yard. And so then J.J. Abrams ships them thousands of dollars of new video equipment. Mm. Like, here, brothers, go really do the thing because clearly you're talented, right? I mean, you know, scripts have been signed. <laughs> You know, you know, if, yeah. if you remember, you know, I think, what was it, Rihanna and Lupita? You know, somebody had a meme like on Tumblr and then it came to Twitter and they were like, oh, yeah, this is kind of interesting. Why won't we do that? Uh-huh. The movie Zola, you know, that started yes. as a Twitter thread. Yes. Right. And and now, it. you know, it showed at Sundance this year. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's a, and, you know, and that's just the entertainment industry. And we also have the opportunity to hold folks accountable. The driving while black and all the rest Mm -hmm. of the stuff or people just showing their entire ass, excuse my language, (laughs) on Twitter or elsewhere. And then they get dragged, you know, and then the black Twitter detectives come out of the woodwork and they're like, "Okay, well, here is his employer, you know, (laughs) and, you know, and, and people have to face consequences, you know, not necessarily punishment, but consequences for their actions. And where else can you reach out directly to an A-list actor or celebrity, you know, or or what have you, or the CEO of a corporation and actually get a response? Mm. As a last question, who are some of your heroes and sheroes? My mom, Mm -hmm. first and foremost. And I'm very thankful that both of my parents are still alive and healthy. But she has always been my biggest cheerleader and fan. And even now, yeah, I'm 50 years old. I've given her two grandchildren. But even now, she treats me like her little girl. And sometimes you just really need that. And my mom went to law school. I just found out, you know how old people, sorry, mom, old (laughs) people say, you know, um, oh, yeah, by the way, there was that one time the such and such. Like, she told me this year that she audited one of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's law school classes, like a gazillion years ago. Wow. I mean, she just brought this out like, oh, and I need to go get some catfish from the market. Like, you know, it was one of those, (laughs) you know what I mean? It was one of those conversations. It's like, you 
you dated Huma? Oh, okay. So that was before or after his second Super Bowl. Like right. those kind of conversations. Oh my gosh. She went to law school, but right before she was going to start practicing law, which is what she wanted to do, she found out she was pregnant with me. Wow. And so instead of taking on that legal job that she knew was going to keep her out of the house with late hours or what have you, she worked as a secretary sometimes. Mm. She worked far below her education so that, you know, we could have a stable home life and she, you know, so she could be home every evening with me. Mm -hmm. And so that's in part why I became a lawyer, because I wanted to fulfill that dream for her. So absolutely one of my heroes. Mm Malcolm X, just plain and simple, for so many reasons, especially the way that he evolved as a human being. Yes. And not enough people talk about that, but yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I mean, you know, he was a criminal. He was, you know, a formerly incarcerated person. He he was, I mean, out in them streets, mm-hmm. you know. And then, you know, he found the Nation of Islam. And, and even after that, like, I don't stop there. Right. Like, let's talk about the pilgrimage mm-hmm. and his Hajj, you know. And then he came back. And to me, if you want to get into conspiracy theories, many of our Black icons and activists, especially in the 60s, were killed or sacrificed assassinated or murdered when they started reaching out to the white community. Mm -hmm. To poor white people. Yep. Right. You can talk about COINTELPRO or FBI, CIA, or whoever you want to say did it or didn't do it or had somebody else do it, whatever. But, you know, when Martin Luther King was talking about the poor people's campaign, when Fred Hampton was reaching out to, like, you know, good old boys and rednecks, Mm -hmm. you know, when Malcolm said, you know, he switched his thing around and said, no, it's not just about black folks. I'm taking this to the United Nations. All of them were cut down in their prime at that point. And so Malcolm, for me, his evolution as a person, his views on Black liberation resonate more with me than than some of the other folks of that time period. Mm -hmm. So absolutely a hero. And then lastly, Audre Lorde, Mm. just because she just opened my mind so much about, like, I don't consider myself a feminist because feminism has always meant white women, Mm. you know? And so I believe in the liberation and the equality of women absolutely across the board, pro-choice, all of that. But the word feminist leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And so I don't use that. But just her teaching me through her books and her writings about who we are and who we can be, especially as women, has been incredibly instructive. April, I could talk to you for a long time. And I hope I do in the future. (laughs) I hope we can be friends. I would like that. Yes. Yes. And we're going to make the Omars happen. Yes. (laughs) Consistency. I'm going to wrap up with a quote. I believe there's a calling for all of us. I know that every human being has value and purpose. The real work of our lives is to become aware and awakened, to answer the call. And that is a quote from Oprah Winfrey. Yes, it is true. I believe that too. So that's what I talk about with students, you know, finding your passion Mm. and being aware, self-aware enough to hear it, right? You know, because we talk about intuition and the voices in our head, and sometimes we tamp those down. But for me, you know, I believe in manifestation. I believe, you know, I'm not a religious person, but I am a spiritual Mm -hmm. person. And so I believe in the universe moving in your favor. But sometimes we need to actually acknowledge that that's happening and let it happen. You know, I think we fight, you know, because of patriarchy and misogyny and all other things. And, you know, we're supposed to be in this box and we're supposed to be this way. You know, I graduated high school in 1987. And if you wanted to be a professional, quote unquote, during that time as a black person, that meant you were a doctor, a lawyer, or an accountant. Like, those were the three things. Yeah, that was it. Yeah, because there wasn't, you know, you can't be what you can't see. Mm. And in 1987, there were a lot less 
role models in various fields, you know, and obviously this is before the internet. So, you know, being a digital media consultant or whatever wasn't a thing Mm -hmm, because there was no digital anything, you know? And so that's why I'm so excited for, you know, Gen Z and millennials who get to do things that I never could have imagined. And for me, it was, okay, well, you got that one job. That's your one job. You got a good job and you're going to stay in that job (laughs) for 30 years, you know, and then, you know, hopefully retire with a pension. And now, you know, young folks are like, oh, eight, 18 months, you know, I did my stint here. Next. I don't really like it. I'm moving on with yes. no consequences for that. And that's amazing. So I think we just need to be open to when that calling happens and figure out how we are going to move. Like not everybody has the privilege that I did to be able to just walk away from a six figure job and still be okay. But how do we continue to move in our purpose? hmm. Yes. So, yeah, you can answer that call, but sometimes you may need to put it on hold for a little bit, you know, until you get to that place where you need to be, uh, until you can have that full conversation with the calling that you've received. Mm. Well, thank you so, so, so much, April. I'm going to applause and ooh and... uh, Be sure to connect with April online at Reign of April, R-E-I-G-N of April. She's definitely going to be on Twitter like she told y'all. And also stay connected with her movement, She Will Rise, at Sister Scotus. So Sister, S-I-S-T-A, Scotus, S-C-O-T-U-S. Make sure you check both accounts out and get to know April, get to know She Will Rise, and support and be a part of the conversation. Thank you so much once again, April. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. I appreciate having the conversation with you. Thank you all so much for joining us. The 180 is produced by David Treatman with audio production and editing by Mike Luno. Original music composed by Jarrett Landon and sung by yours truly. And digital portraits by Byron McRae. If you like what you heard, tell your friends. We need your help to spread the love and inspiration. Follow us on all social media at The180Pod and visit our website at www.the180pod.com. If you want to help support these stories, please consider subscribing to our Patreon. You can get access to chat more with me. You can also get exclusive content, merchandise, and you can hear episodes early. Visit our Patreon at www.patreon.com, The180Pod. Until next time, I'm your host, Eric Lockley. Take care and be blessed. Know that you'll have a blessing if you just keep on pressing. Don't stop, keep going, you can turn it around. The 180, yes, it's a big change. The 180, your life won't be the same. The 180, you can do it. Say yes to your beautiful future. The 180.